we're preaching out of the, the gospel passages for Lent, and so I'm going to reread that gospel passage for us before diving in, starting with verse 31 in Luke 13. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As I was reflecting on that passage this week in preparation, I was kind of asking myself the question of who I felt like we, we could relate to in this passage. And very quickly, I related to Jerusalem, who Jesus is looking towards, moving towards, as we're, we're moving towards the cross here through Lent. But it, it felt complicated to me because Jesus is both lamenting the state of Jerusalem, the fact that that's where prophets, that's where people that are sent to Jerusalem are sent to die, essentially. They die at the hands of the people that they've come to speak to. And he's on that same path. He's headed in that direction. He knows his fate, but he continues to march forward. But along with that lament, there is a motherly heart that he's showing and saying that he longs to, just like a hen does, gather the children of Jerusalem under his wings and protect them. And for me, it was hard to, in reflection, just relate to that imbalance, I guess. I mean, you're on one hand an enemy of God, essentially, the very people that are going to be responsible for the death of Jesus, the death of God, but on the other hand, his children that he loves very much and that he's on his way to save. And to be honest, as an enemy of God and as a child of God, I just don't know what to do with that. <laughs> Today, I proclaim the good news to you that even in the midst of our resistance and rejection of him, Jesus moves towards us, not to condemn us, but to cover us and to save us from our own appetite for power and violence. Most of you are probably familiar with the film Goodwill Hunting. Uh, if not, this sermon will contain spoilers. Sorry. Uh, the film is about a young man who's from South Boston, who's about college age, early 20s, something in there, and he's had a very tough life. He's an orphan. Uh, we don't know much about his backstory at the start of the movie, but we know that he's bounced around through a, different, a few different foster homes, and he's had a hard life. And this hard life has led him to the point where he's working as a janitor at MIT, and what happens in the first part of the movie is a professor at MIT puts a, like a world-class difficult math problem on a chalkboard in the hallway. And Will, Will Hunting, he is mopping the floors and just happens by, sees this problem, this equation, and he solves it. So this, this equation was put on the board as a challenge to the students that were there, so elite-level math students. And this janitor's going through, mopping the floors, and he solves it. He's the one that solves it. So at this point in the movie, you kind of have an up-and-coming, like a coming-of-age story film. That's what it seems like it's on the trajectory for. But very quickly, it gets a lot more complicated than that. 
basically at the same time that he's doing this work there at MIT and solving this, this world-class elite-level math equation, Will and some of his friends, uh, they get into some trouble, which it seems like he's had a past of a lot of trouble. But him and his friends, they, they jump a couple of other guys in the park, and Will actually ends up arrested. And so his saving grace in this situation was that this professor that had issued this challenge goes to the court and actually saves Will from having to go to prison or serve time. There are some conditions related to that, but for this professor, it was worth stepping out because this guy's like a prodigy. He needs to be out of prison to be able to, you know, be a world-class mathematician, essentially. So the professor, he, he takes him under his wing, starts to mentor him. Uh, one of the conditions of this arrangement was that Will would see a therapist because he's obviously working through some stuff. Well, the professor takes him to a number of different therapists, and one after the other, the, the result is the same. Will basically abuses, rejects, I mean, he kind of demoralizes these therapists on a path of destruction. Like, this professor has run out of options because not only is he just saying, like, I'm not going to, to accept this counseling or this therapy, but he's literally, like, ridiculing the therapist to their face. So it's going as poorly as possible. When finally, in a last-ditch effort, the professor takes Will to the professor's college roommate, who is played by Robin Williams in the film. His name's Sean. And Sean is also from South Boston, so there's a little bit of a built-in rapport between them, but not much. It starts out the same. Will is trying to resist his help as much as he can from the start. And Sean continues to step in and step in, and he's still met with adversity and walls of defense from Will, but he eventually gets to the point that there is some relationship there. Well, this whole film culminates in a scene inside Sean, Robin Williams' office, where Sean, the counselor, the therapist, has received Will's file from foster care. And inside this file, there are the details of the abuse that Will suffered as a young child. So there's photographs of the wounds that he sustained from his foster parents, stabbings, burnings, beatings. And you can see in Will's eyes when he walks in and sees this file, that even though he has a relationship with Sean, his guard is up. He's like, okay, I'm going to gloss over here. I'm not going to be present. I'm not going to be vulnerable in this situation. This guy knows my baggage, but we're not going there together. And so Sean steps towards him as he's talking, trying to talk to him about this file. Will's kind of casually leaning on a desk with his hands behind his back, looking like he could barely care about the file. And Sean says, this is some pretty bad stuff. And he's like, yeah, it's bad. And Sean says to Will, he says, this in here, everything in here, it's not your fault. And Will just kind of ho-hum, again, not being vulnerable, not open to the relationship, barely looks like he's present, just like, yeah, I know. Yeah, no big deal. And Sean steps closer to him again. He says, this isn't your fault. And Will says, yeah, I know, I know. And Sean takes another step closer to him. He says, this isn't your fault. And he's like, what are you doing to me? Will like puts his hands out and like shoves him away and says like, don't mess with me, man. Don't mess with me. I relate to this point in the story, not because I've suffered abuses like that in my past, but because I think we've all experienced people abusing our shame or our guilt to get what they want from us or to try to get us to perform better 
people that have known what our baggage was that weren't trying to, they didn't have our best at heart. They needed something from us. And so we have this built-in lack of trust for people going there with us. Whatever there is for you, whatever vulnerable is for you, whatever your weakness is. We're used to people holding shame over our heads as a weapon or as a tool to get us to perform. Vulnerability takes a lot of trust, and we've been burned so many times that trust is hard to come by. Even in the midst of our resistance and rejection of him, Jesus moves towards us, not to condemn, but to cover and save us from our own appetite for power and for violence. In Luke, in the passage that we're preaching out of this morning, Jesus is faced with several threats. He refers to Herod as a fox who's threatening him, right? It's a, a fo- like a power of the world that's saying, hey, stop what you're doing. And Jesus just looks him dead in the eye, these messengers, and says, I'm not going to stop, and you can go tell him that. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. But then he turns his attention to Jerusalem, who he's going to save. And that's actually, in my mind, that seems like the biggest conflict, right? Because we have a little trouble, like, holding Jesus' divinity and his humanity in tandem. So, of course, like, he's not going to back down from Herod. He's God. But what is hard for me to wrap my mind around is when he looks towards Jerusalem as people that he's lamenting where they're at, as people that he knows that are rejecting him actively and have rejected God's messengers in the past and are the very people that are going to kill him. And instead of condemning them for that, he names his desire to cover them and to save them from their shame. Even in the midst of our resistance and our rejection of him, Jesus moves towards us, not to condemn, but to save us, cover us and save us from our own appetite for power and violence. N.T. Wright says that this image of a mother hen covering her chicks kind of is meant to bring to mind like the scene of a barnyard fire where this mother hen gathers her chicks and covers them with her wings. And at the end, when the fire is dissipated and gone out, there's this charred body over the top of these chicks. And once the body is removed... The chicks are saved, even though the mother has absorbed the fire for them and, and, and saved them and shielded them. Even in our Genesis passage today, it's not the first time that God speaks to Abram, but it's the, the first time that Abram speaks back to God, and he speaks in doubt, not in faith. He's not a, a, a pillar of strength in this moment. He's speaking in doubt and in lack. But God's first response to this doubt is to double down on his promises. And he makes a covenant with Abram. And God is the one that commits himself in this covenant. He's the only one that passes through the animals that have been split in two. Abram essentially is a witness to God committing himself to this covenant. And so in my preparation for this week, I actually heard somebody kind of name it as God was putting the divine life on the line for the sake of this covenant. This wasn't plan A and then Jesus ended up being plan B. God can't know everything and also have a plan B. He knew what was going to happen in this covenant. He knew that we weren't going to be faithful. But he put the divine life on the line for that covenant. Even in the midst of our resistance and our rejection of him, Jesus moves towards us, not to condemn, but to cover us and save us from our own appetite for power and violence. So in goodwill hunting, Sean continues to step closer and closer to Will, simply looking him in the eyes and saying, this is not your fault. And Will finally gets to the point where he says, 
stop, like, stop messing with me. And he puts his hands up and he tries to push him away. And Sean steps in one more time. And he says, this is not your fault. And finally, he breaks through that final wall. And, and Will's fully vulnerable with him. And he just collapses into his arms, into his embrace. Fully weak, fully human, fully accepted and loved in that moment. The final wall of his defense is broken down. And he allows himself to receive Sean's embrace, Sean's love for him. The way that this shows up for me is not necessarily that I feel unlovable, but it shows up that I, I need to prove or I need to earn love from God, that I need to perform for him to earn his acceptance. So I'm not standoffish, but I'm just out working and grinding and trying to finally be worthy. And I wonder how this shows up for you guys. Jesus is what God looks like in the flesh. He's moving towards you today in the midst of your shame, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your weakness. Not because he wants to condemn you or make you feel guilty enough that you're finally going to start performing, but because he wants to love you. He wants to cover you and save you. You don't have to fix all the areas that you don't feel worthy of God's love before you can receive his grace. All you have to do is let him in. All you have to do is stop resisting and pushing him away. Just let your arms fall limp at your side and just be wrapped in his embrace, his acceptance, his grace. You can take off your brave face and receive God's love. Even in the midst of our resistance and our rejection of him, Jesus moves towards us. Not to condemn, but to cover us and to save us from our own appetite for power and violence. Today, one of the ways that we're going to respond to this good news is just by lowering our guard. By taking our brave face off, by getting in line and coming forward and receiving Christ's body and his blood. But we're also going to pray a response as well, if you would pray with me. There's a response in your booklet and all. I'll pray first, but if you would join me after that, I'd love to pray with you. Let's take a moment to reflect and just ask God to reveal to us the areas that he wants to meet us in our lives. Father, give me the courage to lay down my defenses so that I can receive your grace where I'm really at. Meet me in my sadness and my need to be in control. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. prayer.